This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. I was educated in the creative writing era where we were encouraged to just write what we felt and thought and dreamed of. Creativity, not grammar, not style, were emphasized. We were encouraged to use those adjectives and those adverbs to make it as interesting as possible. I was a little shocked when I took my one and only journalism course in college that one of the first rules of journalism was use adjectives sparingly. Well, there's some headlines with some mega adjectives like hard right and ultra conservative in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times and the Washington Post. What are those adjectives doing there? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So here are headlines from not small media outlets. Los Angeles Times. Averting an ultra-conservative takeover, Southern Baptists elect a new leader, Washington Post, Southern Baptist-elect Ed Litton as their president, a defeat for the hard right, and none other than the New York Times, Southern Baptists narrowly head off ultra-conservative takeover. Now, I don't recall hearing ultra-liberal or hard-left when Megan Rohr was elected the first trans bishop in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or Elizabeth Eaton, the first female presiding bishop of the same church body, or going back in time, Gene Robinson, the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church. Why? Because they were in the mainstream of their denominations. The writers are trying, professional religion writers especially, are trying to use language that makes sense in the context of these these different religious traditions. In other words, as best I can tell, the, the trans bishop in the ELCA is a perfectly normal bishop in the ELCA these days, and in many, many ways represents the mainstream thought of his slash her denomination. And so they're trying, I mean, there's no need for a label because they are now normal in the context of their church. If you put them in the context of American Christianity, at that point you begin to try to to come up with some other labels. But I want to get back to the Southern Baptist in particular. The three headlines you just read, frankly, I didn't have a problem with any of those three headlines. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention story at the New York Times, it helps to read the next line. And that was what I used as a jumping-off point for a post I put up about an hour ago at Get Religion. So here's the full headline. And this is the way it ran originally. They added the ultra-conservative later. The original headline, Southern Baptists narrowly head off conservative takeover. The second line, Ed Litton, a moderate pastor from Alabama, won a high-stakes presidential election with the potential to reshape the future of the country's largest Protestant denomination. Well, so the two labels there are conservative and moderate. Now, if you're as old as I am, 
you know that since the late 70s, 1979 in particular, the press has been describing an ongoing struggle in the Southern Baptist Convention as being between the moderates and the conservatives. The problem was that the moderate Southern Baptists of, of my youth and of that era, they were pro-abortion rights, they were in favor of the ordination of women, and not just the ordination of women, but to their, their ability to serve as senior pastors, as opposed to, say, an ordained person who was a clergy counselor in a hospital or something. In other words, a, a leadership position over an entire body of people. They were kind of silent, but beginning to lean left on gay and lesbian issues. And there were issues of biblical authority, whether they would not accept the word inerrant, any of the common definitions of inerrancy. That was the old moderate camp. Now, why not call them liberals? Well, I was a part of those discussions, and the, the, the problem was someone was saying, well, can we call anybody in the Southern Baptist Convention a liberal? And then, see, they, they broadened the framework to be all of American religion for some reason. And mainly it's just because the press doesn't like the word liberal because they're not liberal, they're normal. They're moderate, moderate being a word that basically means acceptable to the editors of this story. And the word moderate has been one of the most meaningless words in American political and religious coverage for decades. And the Southern Baptist stories of the 70s and 80s were a perfect example of that. Remember, we talked about this last week in the podcast. Here's the problem. If you look at the Southern Baptist Convention through an essentially political lens, you are pushed to use political terms. The problem is that doctrinally, all of the candidates to be Southern Baptist president this year were conservatives under anyone's approach to theology. They were conservatives. Some were perhaps more conservative to other in the way they applied their view of the Bible and Scripture. The whole idea that anyone would call Southern Seminary President Al Mohler woke or verging on liberal is hysterically funny to anyone who understands the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they were calling Ed Litton a liberal primarily because he was very pro-racial reconciliation which brings up the subject of critical race theory, which I hope we can come back to. He also was in favor of increasing Baptist efforts to punish those accused or found guilty of sexual abuse. And also, on the issue of the ordination of women, he supports the Baptist faith and message position, which kind of implies that, yes, we know there are Baptist churches that do this, but it draws a distinction, as I did earlier, between appointing a woman to a senior pastorate, to a position of leadership over an entire body of people, versus the possible use of ordination as a term for missionaries, counselors, etc. So there was a long answer, but I'm not as concerned about the words ultra-conservative and far-right, because in a Baptist context, those are accurate words. And if the stories did a good job of explaining that this, this election and this convention 
was about conflicts within a world, denominational world, in which everyone is a conservative in terms of their view of the Bible, and where they may disagree somewhat on how that applies to certain issues. And then we get into the fact that in this era, in the Trump era, frankly, some of these debates really are cultural and political more than they're theological, which is why we did the podcast last week about why it was important for journalists to try to ask theological and doctrinal questions at this convention, something that, as far as I can tell, nobody did. But I, we can see rumors of those questions in this attempt to come up with different ways to modify the word conservative. Did that make any sense at all? So if the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, and New York Times are willing in headlines, and then in one case, at least twice in the first couple paragraphs, to use the term hard right or ultra conservative, two questions. Don't they need to define that rather than just leaving it out there kind of in the political wind to be interpreted however one wants to do? And could they also then be using the term liberal or hard left or ultra liberal to describe someone in that church body, or is that just not in the journalist's vocabulary anymore? Well, I don't, at this point, I mean, let's say in a mainline Protestant tradition like the Episcopal Church right now, to be an ultra-liberal or to even be a liberal in the context of the Episcopal Church, I mean, we have a, had a bishop active until a decade or so ago uh, named Ed Spong who was denying the concept of a transcendent or a personal deity. I mean, he was, he was no longer Trinitarian, yet he was a bishop in that church with no one really calling for him to be pushed out or whatever. In the context of the Episcopal Church, what constitutes mainstream thought? The ELCA example that you used earlier, are you really all that liberal if you're defending the doctrines of your church, of your denomination? We, we tend to use liberal and conservative in ways within the framework of the church in which the debate is taking place. Now, if you broaden that to a story that's about a whole lot of churches, multiple denominations, say a, an ecumenical movement that goes from the, the ELCA to some marginal cooperation with black churches and maybe even the Greek Orthodox or something, and I'm thinking of the National Council of Churches or the World Council of Churches. In that sort of context, yes, you need to pull out some other descriptives. What I would prefer that people do is simply define an issue and then describe, I mean, the issue your story is about. In this case, that would be race relations, sexual abuse, you know, and a few other issues, and describe how the people voice their opinions and their beliefs on those specific issues. I think it's much better to describe people's beliefs in terms of how they describe them and how how they voice their criticisms of other people as opposed to just the labels. But let's be honest, it's hard to avoid labels in headlines. If you remember last week, I struggled and struggled and struggled with how to try to describe the different groups within the Southern Baptist Convention. But you have people from the conservative Baptist network calling Al Mohler woke and saying that people of similar religious 
doctrinal beliefs were veering into liberalism, and you had all of this explosive language being used by what was called the right wing, and, and I, I think that's an accurate description of where that network fits into the current Southern Baptist Convention. But biblically and doctrinally, <laughs> these are conservatives. And if you want an accurate description of why they disagree, at some point people need to ask the doctrinal questions and then work on that. So are most reporters using the cultural political definition of these terms or just in the theological context of the church body that they're writing about? The religion writers are almost always using these words carefully. The good ones, the people who've been on the beat for a while, they're using these terms carefully within the context of the denomination they're covering. And this particular event brought out an all-star team of religion writers from across the country. And for the most part, as I put it in the piece up about an hour and a half ago, most of the language I saw in the Southern Baptist Convention stories, I saw people struggling to do the best they could to describe a conflict in which everybody involved was to one degree or another a conservative, but there were significant differences. To me, the coverage of the Southern Baptist Convention this year, there's criticisms I might make of some stories, that that New York Times story in particular, I was highly critical of, but there were lots of other stories that I thought did a fine job and some that were exceptionally good. One, an ironic point about that Times story, and I'm sure this never entered the minds of the people who produced it, they framed the debates at the Southern Baptist Convention in the exact language that the right wing of the Southern Baptist Convention would want used, especially in that first headline where it was conservatives versus moderates. It later turned into ultra-conservatives versus moderates, and ultra-conservatives means there were other conservatives, but then they still use the term moderate. <laughs> Sorry to voice my frustration here, but the the very conservative people in the SBC, the ones who would be most culturally, politically conservative, the ones who were describing themselves as the pirates who were coming back to seize the ship of the Southern Baptist Convention, they would want this debate described as a war between moderates and conservatives. That's exactly, or even liberals and conservatives. That's the language they would use. And I put up a tweet from someone on the right that said, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this. When secular news outlets such as the New York Times write headlines like this, it might just might be a sign you're headed in the wrong direction. And, of course, what they're talking about there is the conservatives lost, the moderates won. And that may be good news to the New York Times editors and their copy desk, but that's not an accurate description of what was happening in Nashville. So, Terry, one other term in those headlines, or two of them, that I would like you to address, and that is the term takeover. I think it's fair to say that while there may be some differences in approach, that the light, the theological distance between J.D. Greer, the exiting Southern Baptist Convention president, and, say, Dr. Albert Moeller, is not great. These, these are two men who probably agree on a vast majority of things 
especially with regard to Baptist faith and message, which is their standard. How is it a takeover if it, let's just say for the sake of argument that that Albert Moeller was elected? How is that a takeover if the, the theology is going to remain the same? Well, it's not a takeover because what they're talking about there is not Al Moeller. They're talking about Mike Stone and the leadership of two organizations, Founders Ministry and the Conservative Baptist Network. If someone from that camp had won the presidency, they would have been in charge of appointing the boards that name the trustees to the various seminaries, agencies, etc. Now, to control the Southern Baptist Convention, to take it over, you can't just win the presidency one year because you only get to name some of the trustees. You don't name all of them at once. Different panels of trustees come on and off. If I remember correctly from the Civil War of 1979, I think you have to hold the presidency five or six years to basically be able to have taken over the denomination, which is exactly what biblical inerrancy advocates, that particular school of conservatism, that's what they did in the late 70s and early 80s. And one of the leaders of that eventually was Al Mohler of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And to my knowledge, everyone involved in this race for presidency this year embraces the term biblical inerrancy. As I said, they would apply it to some social and cultural issues differently, but there would certainly be no disagreement on issues related to abortion, gay rights, salvation, the res- you know, I mean, your basic theological and moral questions that have been hot-button issues in the recent past. So the issue was not whether Moeller was going to take over the Southern Baptist Convention. No one thought that. He's a very much a kind of a conservative member of the mainstream that's been leading the church now for some time. The Conservative Baptist Network is a new organization just founded for the expressed purpose of criticizing the current conservative leadership of the denomination, saying that it has gone woke and is going liberal. And by the way, we don't like the fact that a lot of you didn't love Donald Trump. Okay, let's talk about some of the issues, not only culturally, but in this case, the ecclesiastical issues that were raised and are still being discussed at the Southern Baptist Convention in their meeting there in Nashville, beginning with critical race theory. What is the debate in the Southern Baptist Convention regarding that subject? Well, it's a really interesting issue, a painful one, in large part because you have different perceptions of this issue for perfectly valid and confusing reasons. First of all, the term critical race theory is essentially a secular term for a particular way of analyzing secular law and secular institutions. Now, it has some ramifications that are theological, as most things in this world do. And two years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution very controversial one to the folks on the, I'm sorry, but the right wing, in which they said there are elements of critical race theory that are useful, but they all must be used in subservience to Scripture and to the views, you know, of the Baptist faith and message, etc. Well, the fact that they expressed any acceptance of critical race theory got that labeled as a liberal-slash-woke resolution. 
So let's walk through this theologically for a second. You have this essentially secular way of looking at some big subjects related to evil and corruption and racism and, you know, a lot of other things. And you could describe those in secular, even Marxist terms, and a lot of users of CRT do that. But then at the same time, the black church looks at CRT and says, some of what this is saying we think is accurate and reflects the challenges in our lives, and some parts of this are not acceptable. And we think the Bible should be viewed as the way to look at racism as a sin and sin that should be repented of, and then we move from there. Okay, now there are a lot of very doctrinally conservative African-American leaders, including some in the Southern Baptist Convention, who want to say there are parts of CRT that we think are useful, there are parts that we think are bad, but it's all got to be viewed through the lens of Scripture and our beliefs about sin and you know, and the world. Let me give you the exact phrase from Resolution 9 two years ago. Critical race theory and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subservient to Scripture, not as transcendent ideological frameworks. That's the thing that was passed two years ago. Now, they did not, you can't unpass a resolution of the Southern Baptist Convention, but you had a lot of people wanting to say the key is that you can't talk, you can't accept critical race theory at all. There was a motion made on the floor which was defeated, I believe. Yes, defeated, amended to prohibit any funds being allocated to any institution, agency, or entity that in any way supports, promotes, or advocates any tenets of critical theory, critical race theory, or intersectionality. In other words, the secular lens must be rejected as a complete and total package. There is nothing of value in it at all, even if conservative black church leaders think parts of it are acceptable or useful. So here's your three camps. Critical race theory is wonderful. It's great. We should enforce it. We should go for it all the time. Gung-ho. That's one side. On the other side, you have it must all be rejected. There is nothing at all of value in CRT. It must be rejected as an entire package, and anyone who says otherwise should be driven out of the Southern Baptist Convention and its agencies, etc. What were they trying to do? They were trying to do a middle position, which I described all this in a post a couple of days ago about the fact that what they were trying to do at the Southern Baptist Convention this year was compromise on some of these issues, but compromise in a way that pleased as many conservatives as possible. And what they ended up saying is racism is real. Systemic racism is real because we live in a society that's shaped and affected by sin. But the Bible is our ultimate authority for what sin is and what you're supposed to do about it and whatever we say about race and critical race theory, whatever we say about that must be consistent with what we view in Scripture and what we view in Christian doctrine.
So you had this one position, yay, yay critical race theory. The other, no acceptance of it at all. What label would you put on the one in the middle? Woke, liberal, or conservative? In that we're trying to make conservative biblical statements about what racism is and how we must repent of it and react to it. And so that's the three positions. You had something very similar going on with sexual abuse. We really don't need to talk about this that much. We went too far on the far side of that, on the progressive, whatever side you had people saying, even if it means violating Baptist polity, we need to set up enforcement and an enforcement agency of some kind to make Southern Baptist churches cooperate with what we're doing on this issue and take part in it. And in the middle, you had people saying, we know we can't violate Baptist polity, but we want to do as much as we can. I'm trying to find the the actual language of a uh, very important thing that passed on the floor. Two years ago, efforts began to do this. I thought in many ways, next to the election, maybe the second most important thing that happened at the Southern Baptist Convention this year ended up not getting much attention at all in the press. I think I have a Baptist press statement that has the exact language. Amendment to the Southern Baptist Convention, they added to the definition of a church in the Constitution as it does not act in a manner inconsistent with the Convention's beliefs regarding sexual abuse, and it does not act to affirm, approve, or endorse discriminatory behavior on the basis of ethnicity. They basically changed now, they've got to figure out what the mechanism is for this. They changed the SBC Constitution to say, we can push churches out of fellowship with the Southern Baptist Convention if they violate what we're teaching on sexual abuse or race. And that's a huge change. And in the last couple of years, we have seen churches removed from the Southern Baptist Convention because they hired sexual abusers or they didn't do enough to try to follow up on accusations of sexual abuse. And we've seen, I believe, a church or two removed because of statements that were ra openly racist. So this is an actual change in the SBC Constitution. And I thought that was a pretty big story. And you can see that that's an attempt at this centrist stance on critical race theory and on the sin of racism in general. Are we looking at a denomination that, you said many times here, the Southern Baptist Convention really only exists for about one week every year as a convention, and then it kind of goes back to being radically congregational. Is this a, a denomination in search of a more robust polity, given the hard cases that it's facing with respect to racism and discipline following sexual abuse? Yeah, and, and that's why it was so important that you're beginning to have accusations made against the executive committee of the SBC, because when the SBC is not in session as a convention, the executive committee is in charge, and the executive committee can, can take some actions. 
So the fact that we now have, I haven't seen what happened this afternoon for the final bit of this, that we have people calling for a third-party independent investigation of the executive committee and its actions and the statements of some of its members, including one of the candidates for that ultra-conservative candidate for the SBC presidency, Mike Stone, who was, I believe, the head of the executive committee at the time some of these actions occurred. Yes, the executive committee is being reined in to some degree here. But Baptists can't change their polity. They can't become Presbyterians overnight somehow and come up with Presbyterian structures and you know for different types of you, you can't turn us a, a local southern baptist regional association into a presbytery that owns property and approves whether or not pastors are ordained or given pulpits that's not going to happen that's that's kind of like saying well th- we're roman catholics but this pope thing has got to go you know we just we're not sure we're comfortable with that anymore Baptist polity is what it is. I think to fit this story, though, into a larger whole, I'm hearing from people saying, well, how many of these right-wing Southern Baptist churches are now are going to leave and form their own convention or just go and become independent? That's the flip side of saying how many of the Southern Baptist churches on the other side would have left and gone independent or formed a different convention if the conservative Baptist network had been victorious. This is the thing about free church polity. When in doubt, leave and go independent. So it seems that whatever happens, the world of non-denominational, independent evangelical Christianity just gets bigger. And if you think the Southern Baptist Convention is confusing, try to make heads or tails of trends in the world of completely independent, non-denominational, free church Protestantism. Everything seems to push that direction. With less than a minute, Terry, was there much media coverage about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention? In the past two years? Well, I'm talking surrounding this week. There was quite a bit, but... I I think it's safe to say critical race theory got more attention. There were some some things that happened at the convention involving alleged conflicts between conservatives and women who had been abused, and there were the claims went back and forth. It, it literally what became a he said she said kind of situation there. The most important thing related to that is whether or not you get a genuine, freely functioning third-party investigation of the actions of the executive committee. That's the next stage of the sexual abuse story in the SBC. And if you dig down far enough past the election and past critical race theory, you will find some material on that in the main reports. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He is also founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here again. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, 
please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.